Well, for some time now, been in this Old Testament series in the book of Ecclesiastes entitled Living Life in Perspective. As I've already mentioned, it is about a lot of ultimate questions pertaining to purpose and meaning and the reason why we are here and where are we going and the search for transcendence. All of these things are a part and addressed in this amazing book. It is a book that is at times perplexing. It is a book that that at times seems to dig and, as it were, scrape away at some crusty stuff in our lives and makes us question and wonder about all that we see and life under the sun. But there is more that is here And we're going to be continuing our study today, looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 in today's scripture reading. There's a change. There's been a lot of observation going on, but now there is something that almost goes from observing to somewhat preaching by the writer of the book. Hear the word of God. From Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it for he has no pleasure in fools pay what you vow it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake why should God be angry at your voice And destroy the work of your hands. For when dreams increase. And words grow many. There is vanity. But God. Is the one you must fear. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God. Abides and remains forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it again. Father we once again. Ask that in your light. We will be able to see light. We realize that your truth and your word, though it is revealed, it is only spiritually discerned. Father, it tells us the truth, but we need ears to hear so that we may understand and receive and believe the engrafted word with meekness. And it might result in a peaceable fruit of righteousness and joy in our lives and make us useful to you and your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. In order to understand this passage, and any passage for that fact, 
Context must always be considered. And the teacher has been on an observation spree. He's been for quite some time now since the early chapters when he stated the general vanity and often futility of this fallen world. He's been looking at circumstance after circumstance after situation. He's been viewing scene after scene after a scene trying to find something that makes sense of this broken world that he often refers to with that phrase, under the sun. And it's not been a very pretty picture what he has seen thus far. Looking at the world will only get you so far. And often leaves us with more questions than we have answers. See, that's what he's been doing. He's been saying, I'm going to use my observational senses. I'm going to look out at all of these things in the world and try to make sense of them. And so far, that whole exercise has been one great vain task. But today, the teacher's observations stop, at least for a while. He's going to return to some more. And eventually, the book is going to evolve more and more into instruction. But this has been the observation season. And yet it stops briefly this morning. And we're finding him urging us to use another one of our senses. Not the eyes. Not what appears to us to be the case. But the ear. To stop looking around trying to figure out what sight cannot help you understand and completely explain. But rather, use your ears. And with that, to boot, it also calls us to consider closing our mouths for a while while we do that. Very hard to do, isn't it? You see, if you can't see the master plan, the writer of Ecclesiastes, the teacher or Solomon, is saying... Listen to the plan's master. If you can't understand the master plan of what's going on in this confusing, broken world, and what's it all about, if you can't answer the big, ultimate questions satisfactorily, if you can't understand how things appear to you, then stop trying to observe and listen to the word from God. The world is part of God's revelation. It can tell us some things, but there's something we need that is beyond that and more important and more clear, and that is the Word, the revelation of God. So in order to help us with life's problems, the teacher invites us to go to the house of God and assume the posture of a humble worshiper. Today's outline is very simple. The worship, the warnings, and the wisdom. We're going to look at the call to worship, as it were, here. The reminder of our need to worship. And then we're going to look at these warnings about aspects of our worship and what's involved that can hinder our worship being true and right. And then we're going to look at the wisdom and what that means and what that speaks and how that brings everything full circle 
and helps us understand our place. First of all, the worship. The late R.C. Sproul once was asked by a friend this question. What is the big idea of the Christian life? In other words, what is it the essence of living the Christian life? To that, as he was prone to do, R.C. invoked the theologian's prerogative. And he gave him some Latin terminology. He said, Coram Deo. What does that mean? Look on the screen. Coram Deo. Before the face or in the presence of God. You see, Coram Deo refers what takes place in God's presence or before his face. To live Coram Deo is to live one's entire life. Not just the public, but the private. Every part of our living. Recognizing, realizing, knowing, and understanding, and appreciating that we are in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and we are here for His glory. That's what it means to live before the face of God. To live Coram Deo. And it's this subject that the bookends of this passage that we just read in verses 1 through 7. It's this passage, that subject, that the bookends of the passage give us. Look again. The bookends are in verse 1a of chapter 5 and 7b. Guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Something is being very important to understand there. And then verse 7b, but God is the one you must fear. Now let's think about that for just a few moments here. These two verses, they function like sentinels, like guards, reminders, watching, guarding, helping us guard our approach to God and making sure that we understand with whom we are dealing. Unfortunately, we don't do that very well. We tend to speak more than we listen. And yet, as it were, what is being encouraged here is for the worshiper. If he is going to worship the true and the living God, be mindful. Be mindful of who he is. And he's not like us. He is not like us. He is not one of us. Notice that God has a house. Now, that's specific imagery that refers to the Old Testament temple. Originally built by Solomon and rebuilt after the Babylonian cap returned from the Babylonian captivity. That temple was the place in which God 
often would manifest or reveal himself on earth. So the house of God is the place of the worship of God here on earth. Of course, it's not confined to that. Remember, Solomon, who built the temple, said, Lord, heavens and earth cannot contain you, much less this this paltry temple that we have built for you. He knew that this is not the only expression. God's presence is everywhere. He is omnipresent, we say, in theological terms. He is both in heaven and he is here. Both on heaven and on earth. And wherever God is, here's what we need to understand. There is an immense separation. There is always a distance and a difference between the creator and his creation. That's you and me. There is a vast, immeasurable distance between the two. Do you remember that was one of Job's blunders? Finally, he decides to speak. Instead of suffering, he decides to protest God's dealings and inequities in his life. And you know what happens. God takes three chapters at the end of that book to basically remind him who is the creator and who is the creature. We have a real struggle with that. We have a real problem of that, especially in our time, because guess what? We are not quick to listen. We don't like to be instructed or lectured or taught because in our culture, we think it's all about conversation. Now, believe me, conversation in the right sense of the word is a good thing. But today, what we really mean is I don't want to hear, I don't want to learn, I don't want to listen to someone who has greater understanding than me. I want to bump my gums right in there with you. I want to talk, talk, talk. I want to jabber on about this as if I know as much. Today, we do not respect in general the wisdom of those that know more than we do, and yet we should. You see, as a reminder here that when we go to the house of God, we are dealing with someone that is not like us. He is holy. He is the thrice holy God. He is holy other. He is independent. He is everlasting. He is eternal. And in all these ways, he is above us and beyond us. And he is outside of us. There's also a reminder here in this first point of worship to fear God. Now, how do we understand that? Here's the, here's the short, condensed answer. We could talk about that. You can go on. I've heard whole series on just that whole concept of the fear of God. But the best way, I think, to simply put it is trembling trust. Trembling trust or reverential awe. And other terms would, would get at it. But it's that idea. It's something in which there is faith, 
And there's also a proper fear. But they go together. Our posture in his presence should be that of humility, reverence, and faith. Let me share with you one of my favorite hymns. And matter of fact, it's a hymn that I've, I've uh, written uh, the tune. Because the tune in the, in the hymnals is, is not good. Uh, so I, I tried. Now, I'm not saying mine's good because that's why you, I've never shared it with you. I just, I just use it in private worship. I just use it in my worship of God. But I love this hymn. It's a great, uh, great hymn. My God, how wonderful thou art. Now, I want you to listen to the first three verses. It captures this transcendent picture of God. A God who is worthy of our worship. Who is other and holy, wonderful and glorious. Listen to these words, verses 1 through 3. My God, how wonderful thou art. Thy majesty, how bright. How beautiful thy mercy seat in depths of burning light. How dread are thine eternal years, O everlasting Lord. By prostrate spirits day and night incessantly adored. Then it goes on in verse 3. How wonderful, how beautiful the sight of thee must be. Thine endless wisdom, boundless power, and awesome purity. Now, that's no wimpy hymn. That's a God that's worthy to be worshipped. And to exalt, to lift him up. You see, when it comes to the things we don't understand about this world, we're quick to demand an answer. We want an answer if we can't find it from God. If he doesn't give it, if he doesn't make it clear, we'll go on our own. The worldly wise man says, I believe. I will believe when I fully understand. The humble wise man says, I believe in order to understand. You see the difference? Anselm said that a thousand years ago. Anselm of Canterbury. I believe in order to understand. He wasn't saying there's not knowledge. and He was not at all decrying that. But he was saying some things are beyond our ability to understand. Sometimes we're working out of our pay grade. We're in over our heads. And then that's when you fall upon your face before the living God and said, God, this is known to you. You understand. I worship you. I can't lecture you. I come to bring you worship and I trust myself into your merciful hands. There's also beyond worship, there's warnings here. Then it gets into some specific things that can happen in worship. And again, this is talking about in context uh, several things from the Old Testament aspects of worship. Between the two imperatives that frame the text, there's a number of negative admonitions, things we shouldn't do. And all of these admonitions are warnings about some aspect of worship. In verses 1 through 3, it's about listening instead of speaking, speaking or babbling on and Saying more than we should. It's about limiting our words. Using a, commod- a, a, a smaller number of words. The depiction reminds us of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Do you remember that? When Jesus gave that story in, uh, in Luke chapter 18, 10 through 12. The Pharisee 
is going into the place of worship and he starts with what? I thank thee, Father, that I am not like other men, like that tax collector over there, that really low-down, sorry, miserable wretch. I, and, he, I, and he goes on and he starts padding his resume, his record of his accomplishments. Surely convinced God will smile on him. And yet, what do we find of the tax collector? He can barely find these simple words. Oh, God. And he doesn't even look up. He puts his head down. Oh, God. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Few words, but profoundly worshipful and true. And if you know the story, the Pharisee, justified himself and that's all he had that man jesus said went down to his house justified the tax collector because he spoke the truth he humbled himself before god and he believed in god's and asked for his mercy you see the writer of ecclesiastes is not speaking about about um persistent prayer there's there's a lot of encouragement in the scripture for persistent prayer a number of places but he is talking about pretentious praying pretentious like the pharisee was doing uh john bunyan the author of pilgrim's progress wrote this in prayer it is better to have a heart without words than to have words without a heart it's not how much you say it's not how long you say it it's what you're saying and do you mean it Luther, in his typical bluntness, you know what kind of a guy Martin Luther was in the time of the Reformation. He said this about our prayers. They should be brief, they should be frequent, and they should be intense. Brief, frequent, and intense. So the next time you feel you're not very spiritual because you can't pray like some of these old Puritans or even like some of your friends that, that have you know an hour and a half devotion and spend 30 minutes in solid prayer, and you can't stay awake for five minutes, you don't have to say a lot. They just need to be brief, frequent. Just keep coming back. Jesus, I need you again. I need you again. Forgive me again. And they need to be intense. In verses 4 through 7, you see something else. There's some more admonitions there in and, and verses 4 through 7a. The admonitions relate to making vows. In the context, in Old Testament, often vows were a part. The making of vows were a part of the giving and the service of the temple. They were part of worship. And so, again, this is being regulated. Making vows is not the issue, though. If you read the t- what is said in those texts, in that text, as you read it, it's not a prohibition to not make any vows or to make vows. It's the problem of impulsive promises that we have no intention of keeping. That's the problem. Let me tell you a story. There was um, back as, when I was growing up, uh, there was a southern comedian whose name I will not mention, but uh, he, he did a lot of sketches and vignettes, and some of them were, were not appropriate, not good taste, or worse. But um, some of them were rather, rather humorous. And he told this one story about uh, a, a southern businessman that did not like to fly on airplanes. 
Um, and uh, he, but he always drove everywhere he went. But for some reason, this time he couldn't. He had to get there, and the only way he could get there was by plane. So he gets on the plane, and sure enough, he's scared to death. The man is just sweating profusely. He is absolutely convinced this plane is going down, and sure enough, he gets up somewhere, you know, over over Tennessee and heading up north, and the planes start shaking and vibrating. And he looks out, and it looks like the, the, the wings on the plane are getting hotter. And the man is just going frantic, and he, he cries out. He said, oh, God, God, please get me off of this airplane. If you'll get me off this airplane, I'm gonna, I'll give you half of everything I own. And almost immediately, the plane calms down. The shuddering stops, and he lands safely, and he starts to disembark and get off the airplane. And as he does, here comes the preacher, white shoes and all, running across the tarmac for him, saying, Son, son, I heard what you said on that airplane. I heard that you were going to give the Lord half of everything you own, and I know you're going to start right now. The businessman says, Preacher, no, I made a better deal. I told him if I ever get back on another one, he can have it all. You see, but what's the point? The point is, he wasn't serious about the vow. He didn't mean it. It was not from the heart. It was not intentioned. Don't make Foolish promises. Now, some people try to avoid. They just say, I won't ever make any promise. You make promises whether you say, this is a vow. You make a promise when you say, yeah, I'll do that. You got, you, you all got kids, don't you? Some of you. Some of you have been kids. You've been that guy, that girl that says, no, I'm not going to do it. But then you do it. And the other one says, oh, yeah, sure, sure, I'll do it. And doesn't do it. Now, which one? You know which one a parent prefers of those two. You see, in a nutshell, this warning is a precursor of Jesus' instructions. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. It doesn't mean you can't make a vow. It doesn't mean a vow is wrong. It just simply said, be, have integrity. What you say you will do, do. No cross fingers. Remember that? <laughs> Growing up? Hey, sure, sure, I'll do that, Clark. Well, yeah, hey, you didn't do it. I have my fingers crossed. A way to not have integrity. A way to not be honest before God and with one another. See, all these not only offend God, these shortcuts, these insincere babblings, not being willing to listen, all these things Show foolishness. Now, there's a very important aspect here, just briefly. The wisdom. What do I mean by that? The wisdom. Stay with me. It's time to return to the beginning of the bookends. The fear of the Lord and what it means to live before the face of God. Now, what have we noticed so far? We've already said, look, God is holy and he's majestic. He's awesome. He's holy other. The God of Scripture is. And he dwells in unapproachable light. Now, the million-dollar question is, how do you approach a God like that then? If he is all of that, and if it's really true, how 
do you come before him? How dare you come before him or I or anyone else before such a God? See, that was the problem that the Old Testament sets up for us that only can be solved in the new. You see, of his transcendent, there's no doubt. But is there a way for us to draw near safely? And once again, the answer, the answer is found not in this portion of God's word, but in the final word. And not just even a written portion of the word, which this is, but in the word with a capital W, Jesus, the final word of God, the one who brings the wisdom of God. The answer is there. You see, remember, the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed listen to the rest of that song i quoted earlier remember how awesome and glorious and kind of scary so it was so awe-inspiring and so fearful but listen to the last part of that song my god how wonderful thou this is verses four six and seven. Oh, how i fear the living god with deepest, tenderest fears, and worship thee with trembling hope and penitential tears. No earthly father loves like thee, no mother's heir so mild, bears and forbears as thou hast done with me, thy sinful child. Father of Jesus, love's reward, what rapture will it be? Prostrate before thy throne to lie and gaze and gaze upon thee. Tim Keller says, only love makes you interested in gazing on someone's face. And pray that God and his love will become so real that you won't run from him, but you'll run to him and into his arms. You see, that's the, how, how does this come together? How does this transcendent, holy, other, almost scary God, how can he also Deal with us in our sinfulness. How can he? And of course the answer is applied only in Jesus. Only in Jesus can we experience both the transcendence and the imminence. The nearness. The friendliness. The fatherliness. The nearness of God. Only in Jesus Christ can that bridge be made. So that he, we can worship him with both of those realities without fear. And yet in the proper kind of fear that the Bible talks about. Without this understanding, we can never really fear God in the most complete sense. And that is the most complete sense. It's not just the, the fear of punishment and awesomeness, but it is also that faith. That trust in a father. And when those two come together. And they only come together because of Jesus. Then we worship him. At last. In the fear of God. In its most true and final and complete sense. And also we worship him as Jesus said. In spirit and in truth. May God help us to do so. Amen. Father we ask you now. Help us. That we might worship you 
with trembling hope and penitential tears. And yet we thank you that in Jesus, this, the, the problem, the dilemma of the ages, how can, can sinful man be in the presence of a holy God? Yet you have provided the answer in what Christ has done through his life and death and resurrection. Father, so that we can not only know your transcendence and glory in that, Father, but also in your eminence. Father, we thank you for that nearness. Give it to us day by day and help us to worship you faithfully in spirit and truth. We pray in Jesus' name.